Short Sharp Surge Series, the surgical podcast for medical students and junior doctors. Hello, welcome to Short Sharp Surge Series. I'm Amanda and today I'm joined by Dr. Mitchell Hansen, a consultant adult and paediatric neurosurgeon here in Newcastle. Uh, Dr. Hansen's here for today's episode on how to approach the patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Hello, Dr. Hansen. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Fantastic. Excellent. All right, so today's uh, episode is going to cover the etiologies for subarachnoid hemorrhage, including traumatic and spontaneous, the presentation of a subarachnoid, the diagnosis and initial management, and then we'll also touch on complications of subarachnoid and how to manage those. So as usual, I'll begin with a case. You are the surgical intern on an evening shift, and you're called to the neurosurgical ward by a very concerned nurse. You're asked to review Gemma, a 56-year-old woman who is day 8 following a subarachnoid hemorrhage and day 7 post-clipping of the culpable aneurysm. The nurse is concerned that she has a new facial droop and left-sided limb weakness compared to when she did neuro-observations two hours previously. You quickly check her notes and see that on admission, Gemma had been a GCS 13, but after three days in ICU, had been well enough to transfer to the ward. You discover that apart from a long-term smoking history, she had been previously well. So, Dr. Hansen, perhaps to start with, you could tell us what a subarachnoid hemorrhage is. Sure. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, basically, from an anatomical perspective, is just any bleeding slash hemorrhage that's underneath the arachnoid malar layer of, uh, that surrounds the brain on the meninges. As you said, it can be from a number of etiologies, which I guess we'll get into soon. Yeah. Yeah, so we mentioned in the case that Gemma had an aneurysm clipped. Um, ruptured intracranial aneurysms are reported to account for approximately 75 to 80% of spontaneous subarachnoids. Could you tell us a bit more about other etiologies? You know, traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage is probably the one that you see the most of, which can basically come from any significant head knock. We see them a lot in um, car accidents, and um, you also see them in the one-hit traumas that you get in the papers now. Spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage, though, um, the majority of them come from what we call perimesencephalic hemorrhages. They're normally around the basal systems of the brain, and... We're not sure of the etiology of those completely. It might just be a small AVM or something similar that kind of blows out and then stops. The risk of further rupture, though, with these is no more than the rest of the population. So um, they occur in about 10 to 15% of these cases. Vertebral dissection can cause um, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, and then some of the ischemic events can also cause... Um, spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage, but these are more around the parietal lobes and in the sulci out there. Perimesencephalic uh, hemorrhages, as I said, are normally around the basal cisterns and can have quite a lot of blood and can mimic aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. So that's why it's kind of important to work out which is what. Alrighty. So perhaps now you could tell us a bit about the presentation of subarachnoid hemorrhages, including what symptoms people complain of and how they examine. Yeah, so aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage is normally the thunderclap headache. So that can come on with basically any significant strain or can just come out of the blue. Um, most of the presentations of the thunderclap headache are uh, 
the ones you see most regularly if you actually talk to people about them are things that increase their intra-abdominal pressure and obviously their intracranial pressures as well, such as significant sneezing, coughing attacks, opening their bowels, or um, the one that uh, can be quite awkward is the post-orgasmic headache. Oh dear. So with regards to examination, the most common complaint is headache. Um, but patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage can be quite obtunded in the emergency department. So they normally have headache, nausea, vomiting, um, photophobia, neck stiffness, kind of the signs of meningism. But uh, obviously the sicker ones can come in and they're in, um, in comas um, and they can also present with a neurogenic cardiac arrest and pretty florid pulmonary edema as well. Okay. And could you touch on what the GCS is and its clinical utility in subarachnoid hemorrhages? <clears throat> so GCS, or the Glasgow Coma Scale, is a pretty uh, gross assessment of a person's uh, level of consciousness, with 15 out of 15 being hopefully you and I and three being a rock <laughs> um, and everything in between. Normally, if the patient's GCS is eight or below, then they need to be intubated, and obviously they're pretty sick. Above that, you can probably watch, uh, watch an airway. However, if they've um, reduced by a point or two, then you're probably better off intubating them earlier rather than later. The GCS can be plugged into a couple of scales to work out how significant a subarachnoid hemorrhage is, but mainly it's on the level of consciousness as to what sort of bleed they've had. The clinical utility within subarachnoid hemorrhage, I guess, is is a change. Patients can pre- present with what's called a sentinel headache, which is just a bleed and then that sudden thunderclap headache and it settles, which is just a little bit of hemorrhage, and then they can have a, a second bleed. So certainly if they've had a drop in their GCS, especially by a couple of points, then um, that's one thing that you need to keep in the back of your mind might have happened. GCS... Uh, being low um, can also indicate that um, you know they might need some form of monitoring uh, if a patient's going to be kept in a coma or are comatose then um, some pressure monitoring uh, if their intracranial pressure is is required to make sure that they um, are accessible in some form okay and so would a particular, oh, I, I suppose the question is, are there any relevant prognostic indicators? Does the GCS on admission um, give an idea as to a patient's prognosis? Look, there'd be some significant um, studies that have been done to demonstrate, you know, what the level of GCS is on arrival and, and to what the patient can do. Probably just under one in three patients die before they make it to hospital. Then of those patients that make it to hospital, another one in three don't make it home and die. If you present with uh, very low GCS, um, such as your eight or below, then we call that a grade five subarachnoid hemorrhage, and uh, the chance of you making it home back to your baseline level of function is probably only five percent. So, mm. yeah, it's um, it's pretty significant. Mm. Um, Injury, obviously. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, let's move on now to the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So in our case, we already know Gemma is being treated for a subarachnoid, but if we had been the intern in ED, for example, when she first was admitted, how would we go about the workup of a suspected subarachnoid hemorrhage? I guess the first thing is you need to have a suspicion of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So we ran through what sort of patients present with it. So it's those with the thunderclap, sudden onset headache, um, it's somebody that has migraines, but this migraine's a lot different. It's come on um, quicker. It's in a different distribution to normal. Somebody whose blood pressure's been up, they're a smoker, um, and develop a headache, then you need that um, suspicion that they've had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, I guess, in the first place. Mm. So once your A, Bs and Cs are done, I mean, the best first test, I guess, is um, a CT scan of the brain to look at whether or not there is blood in the subarachnoid space, and then we can work it up from there. Um, second kind of exam you do on a, with a CT of the brain would be a CT angiogram. They're, you can get them in most hospitals, um, and that can look for a for an aneurysm, and then we can work it up further from there. Um, you know where we'd go from there generally would be a, a diagnostic cerebral angiogram, or if you're out and about a, an MRI to have a look for um, for an aneurysm with an MRA as well. If a patient comes in and they've got what sounds like a great story for a subarachnoid hemorrhage, but they have no blood on their CT scan, then um, a lumbar puncture would be indicated, but the uh, best time to wait for that is after 12 hours. Right. To look for xanthochromia. Okay. Um, that's probably the best workup. The thing to remember also is to send off a group and hold. Mm. Why is that? So you don't want to get to the operating theatre and then not have a group and hold because these patients can become obtunded pretty quickly. Yes, okay. Now that's very important. It's also good to know whether there are any anticoagulants and the like now. Mm-hmm. See whether they need to be reversed if you're worried about subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, further down the track, if you have a non-aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, we often do an MRI. Well, we do an MRI of the neck vessels to look for a dissection as well. Okay. Alrighty, so moving on now to the initial management of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The ABCs are hopefully already being looked after, ensuring the patient has a patent airway, they've got venous access and cardiac monitoring for possible arrhythmias. Can you tell us firstly what needs to be done before calling for a neurosurgical consult? Sure. You need a decent history of the patient, um, including their meds, um, because what gets done to them depending on their anticoagulation status is pretty important. You also need to demonstrate that there's a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's not real good to call us and say, oh, well, I think I've got a patient with one. <laughs> um, a demonstrated subarachnoid hemorrhage is a reasonable thing to do. So make sure there's a scan first. Yeah. So in the ED, scan is good. And then if there is a bleed, then um, it's probably a good thing to arrange that CT angiogram Unless, of course, the patient's intended, then you want to get, um, you want to speak to the neurosurgical registrar on call and give them a, a heads up that you've got somebody with blood on the scan 
mm. the subarachnoid space um, and that the patients have tundered, mainly because um, they can present with hydrocephalus, which um, would need to be attended to pretty quickly. Okay. All right, so the, you've called the neurosurgical registrar and they're on their way to review the patient and they've asked you to chart the nomodipine and some IV fluids. Why are these important? So nomodipine is a drug that we use to stop vasospasm, which occurs in probably 20 to 30% of patients that uh, have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, well, a aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. About 10% of patients get symptomatic um, vasospasm. What that is is basically is the blood breaks down, the um, blood becomes irritating to the vessels and then they clamp down so the perfusion becomes less than recommended. The nimodipine is a calcium channel blocker and reduces the chance of vasospasm by about 10%, which is significant. We haven't got any real good other medications to help with that. Um, there's triple H therapy, which um, we use, but that's mainly after the aneurysm secured um, and that's where the IV fluids um, become a little bit more important. And the type of IV fluids we use are important in that we don't want to give a, any patient with a cranial pathology 5% dextrose or 4% a fifth as uh, the risk of cerebral edema is, uh, becomes important. Mm. So the normodipine can be IV or oral. Um, we normally use 60 milligrams an hour, uh, 60 milligrams every four hours as the dose for um, the nimonapine, and they normally stay in that for a full 21 days with the peak time for vasospasm between day seven and 14. Okay. All right. And what about um, blood pressure targets in subarachnoid hemorrhage? Is that important? Yeah. So that's a great question, Amanda. Thank you. So for an unsecured aneurysm, you don't want the pressure too high as um, there's a risk of a following of a subsequent rupture. And if an aneurysm ruptures for a second time, then the risk of mortality and significant morbidity goes up to around 80%. Right. It's quite high. Quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally I get my patients um, that have had a ruptured aneurysm to get the systolic under 140, so normally within the range of 100 to 140. After the aneurysm's secured, then we need to think about the cerebral perfusion pressure, and uh, this becomes more important when we look at vasospasm um, down the track where sometimes we want a hypertense to, um, to perfuse the brain pro- properly, and... In fact, some of the blood pressure targets can go up over 200 systolic depending on um, what we're targeting. So mm. the neurosurgical team um, drives blood pressure pretty significantly and within a tight range. Mm. Okay. All right. Now, um, you've already touched on uh, when the aneurysm is secured. So we, me- we mentioned in the case that Gemma had had an aneurysm clipped. Uh, perhaps you could briefly touch on the ways in which an aneurysm can be secured. Yeah, sure. Um, There's two main ways to secure an aneurysm. Um, What you're trying to do is stop blood perfusing the aneurysm. And um, this can be done either through an endovascular approach or an open operation. Um, The endovascular approach is better for posterior circulation aneurysms and some of the more proximal anterior circulation aneurysms. 
um, compared to operative um, intervention. Um, but not all aneurysms can be secured endovascularly depending on the anatomy of the aneurysm. So what we look at is the neck of the aneurysm and then the size of the dome. So if the neck's quite small, then that's possibly an aneurysm that can be treated by endovascular means. Otherwise, it comes down a bit to um, health of the patient and the like. If they're on blood thinners, then you can still have an endovascular approach, but sometimes you don't want to do that. Um, you know, if... if uh, you don't want an operative approach if they're if they're on a blood thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, timing of the intervention, you want to do this earlier rather than later. Um, a few days after the the ictus or the the bleed, um, the brain will swell, and then that makes um, surgical approach difficult. In fact, in the olden times, <laughs> they uh, they used to wait um, fourteen days to. Um, clip aneurysms because basically a trial of life to get them over the vasospastic time. Um, Now there's much more leaning towards early intervention and that's within eight hours of having the ictus um, because that's probably the best time to secure the aneurysm and reconstruct the vessel. Okay. The aneurysm clips are normally made of titanium. It's basically the way I talk to the patient is like putting a um, closed peg on the end of a balloon, stop the blood flowing into it, whereas endovascular approach of platinum coils go within the balloon and then that stops the blood flowing into it. Mm. Um, and what are the initial potential complications associated with subarachnoid hemorrhages? What should juniors be aware of and be monitoring for? Um, so the unsecured aneurysm, two main ones are re-bleed, obviously, and hydrocephalus. Um, but hopefully we're doing something about either of those. Um, you can get a cerebral salt wasting phenomenon, giving you hyponatremia um, post-treatment um, of the aneurysm. This is normally a few days after the initial ictus again. Um, and delayed hydrocephalus is also um, an issue with a lot of the blood flooding around changing the water of CSF into engine oil and so that becomes gluggy and can become awkward. Mm -hmm. Um, Seizures, if the patient undergoes surgical intervention or even just with the bleed, um, seizures are a um, possibility, probably less than 10%. I don't routinely start any seizure medication on patients, but um, simple partial and... um, Generalised tonic-clonic seizures are all possible with, with aneurysmal subarachnoid. Okay. All right. And in our case, Gemma is eight days down the track from her initial subarachnoid hemorrhage, for which she had the neurosurgical intervention to clip the aneurysm. You've now been called to review a new facial droop and left-sided weakness. What would you be concerned about as a junior and what steps should be undertaken to manage her? The nice thing is the... Neurosurgical registrars are always approachable. <laughs> um, so they should be notified that there is a problem. Check that the patient's not had a seizure, if that was witnessed. At day eight, you would think that it's vasospasm unless um, you document another reason for it. So normally you check that the three letters of fluid a day have been going on. Um, it's normally okay to give a, 
a small bolus of fluid to get the blood pressure up, but after your A, Bs and Cs, you should send off some bloods to check ECs and make sure there's a valid group and hold, and then also um, give a small bolus of um, normal saline. Um, wait for the neurosurgical registrar to come by. All right, and um, what would the neurosurgical registrar be likely to ask you to do? Normally, um, they'd ask you to give a bolus of fluid, and generally the next step would probably be a CT scan, probably a CT angiogram. CT scan would look for hydrocephalus, um, new hemorrhage, or um, CT angiogram to look for vasospasm. Um, the other things they might do is actually just speak to the interventional radiologist or neurologist on call, whoever does the angiograms, and go straight to a formal diagnostic cerebral angiogram, depending on what the thoughts are with what's happened with the patient. Okay. All right. So, Dr. Hanson, do you have any other pearls of wisdom from your own experience or anything else you'd like the juniors to know? I don't think so. I mean, aneurysmal subarachnoid is an emergency and um, can be pretty scary, I guess. Um, patients do die pretty quickly if things aren't treated properly or well. So it needs to be, need to have a, an index of suspicion that it's happened in the emergency department. And then um, you need to treat any change in a aneurysmal patient with a um, degree of care, I guess is the best thing to to do. Hmm. All right. Um, would you like to provide us with a brief summary or perhaps three key points that you think that we should take away from today's episode? Um, I guess the three key points are that degree of suspicion. You don't forget in as the ED intern or resident, whatever, the thunderclap headache and in that patient that comes in um, needs to be treated carefully and push for that early CT scan because really it's the CT that will give you a diagnosis. Um, if uh, the patient has had a hemorrhage, then you need to get onto the neurosurgical registrar to come and sort it out. Um, and then the third point is, as our case Gemma demonstrated, the, uh, the patient on the ward that's you know, a week down the track that's been doing quite well, um, that has new neurology, um, I'd be thinking that it's vasospasm until it's proven otherwise. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining me here today for another episode of Short Sharp Surge Series. Um, thank you, Dr. Hanson. Thanks, Amanda. See you next time. <laughs>